Well, good evening and uh, welcome. Welcome to our Bible study. Thank you for coming out tonight and um, welcome to those who are tuning in online. Uh, if you have a Bible, it'd be good if you could open, please, to Ruth chapter 2. And uh, our text for tonight is just three verses. It'll be the first three verses of Ruth chapter 2. And let's pick up reading at uh, verse 1. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn, after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you uh, that we can spend some time uh, together this night uh, studying the scriptures. Uh, please give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to comprehend, and grace to apply. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, I wonder what it would be like... Are reading the stories of the Bible and having no idea how things were going to unfold. So we don't know if Daniel will survive the lion's den or what will happen to David when he challenges Goliath or what will happen to Jonah after he is thrown overboard. And that would certainly add a real degree of suspense. Uh, I love teaching these Bible stories to my children for the first time because they don't know what's going to happen and I deliberately try and build suspense. I usually ask the question, I wonder what God is going to do, it's you know, like a drum roll and then you're watching their reactions and usually there's this sense of amazement and wonder and they're like, what? How did that happen? And it's, it's just amazing to see and I, I do think we can miss that a little bit when we are so familiar with the Bible. And there's a sense in which okay, we can miss some of the author's intention because we know the story so well and we know how it finishes. Uh, it's a bit like if you're watching a movie for the first time, uh, but some lovely individual told you how it ends. Okay, that really takes away from the initial viewing. Uh, I love sport and I once had a grand final uh, recorded. And at the time, I was very passionate about this team. The grand final was on a Sunday, so I did the right thing. I went to church, I recorded the game, and as soon as church finished, some delightful person came up to me and said, guess what, the game went to a penalty shootout. I'm like, thanks. You just ruined the entire game because I knew how it ended. And I think sometimes we can miss things, particularly in the scriptural narratives that we know well. Uh, and the beginning of Ruth chapter 2 fits this category uh, because the author is actually endeavoring to build suspense. Uh, he's trying to engage the reader. He's trying to get us hooked in the storyline. And the author is also giving us what's referred to today uh, as Easter eggs in productions. Okay, I'm not talking about the chocolates, but they are like little clues and hidden references. And they're incorporated into the plot. And they reveal things that are going to unfold later in the story. And there are actually three ways that the author 
okay, in these verses, looks to build suspense and also share with us some clues about what's around the corner in this narrative. And it's in all three verses. Okay, so the first thing is in verse 1. Okay, this chapter starts, okay, in a way it's not really seen in English, but in the Hebrew syntax, it signals the opening of a new scene. And in this new scene, we're introduced to a man named Boaz. But what the writer does is he only gives us the barest details. And this introduction is designed to arouse the curiosity of the readers. Okay, who, who, who is this Boaz? And create some suspense to the narrative. Okay, who's Boaz? Why haven't we heard of him before? Does he have a role to play? Because after introducing Boaz, the attention then shifts straight back to Ruth and Naomi. Now, the second thing that he does, this is found in verse 2. Here, Ruth takes Santa's stage. And she suggests that she should go and glean in the fields. And again, this seems very insignificant. Lots of people would have been gleaning. But this is crucial in the unfolding narrative. And what the author does, endeavoring to build suspense, he adds this phrase, in whose sight I shall find grace. And this is designed to cause the reader to think, well, will she find the gracious harvest host or, or will she not? Okay, will this happen? Will it not? And again, this is designed to build suspense. And then number three in verse three, the central theme of the book is actually identified in a very clever and subtle way. And again, the way that it's written, it's designed to engage the reader. Now, the key phrase in verse 3 is one that actually seems a little... Uh, it's not that clear to us when we first read it. Why? Because it's not phraseology that you and I tend to use today. It says in verse 3, And her hap was too light on a part of the field belonging to Boaz. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever heard someone use this phrase, her, his or her hap was too light. Okay, I've never used that phrase. Uh, but 1 Samuel 6, 9, okay, it contains the same Hebrew phraseology. And there it says, it was a chance that happened to us. So what the author is saying here is by chance, she ended up in the fields of Boaz. Okay, and understand, this would have instantly provoked a response for the original readers. Israelites didn't believe in chance. Okay, this would have grabbed their attention. How can it speak of chance? We believe that the lot is cast in the lap, but the Lord is in control of it. Okay, and this seems to be the writer's intention. He, he's actually employing this Okay, as, a, as a device to, to, to grab our attention. I think one commentator summarizes this well. Uh, this quote's in your notes. It says, By excessively attributing Ruth's good fortune to chance, he forces the reader to sit up and take notice, to ask questions concerning the significance of everything that is transpiring. The statement is ironical. Its purpose is to undermine purely rational explanations for human experiences and to refine the reader's understanding of providence. In reality, he is screaming, see the hand of God at work here, the same hand that sent the famine and later provided food. 
is the hand that had brought Naomi and Ruth to Bethlehem precisely at the beginning of the harvest and has now guided Ruth to the portion of the field belonging specifically to Boaz. Okay, so that's the intended intention. And the author, in these introductory verses, he's trying to build suspense in the storyline. He's trying to engage the reader. And I think it's important for us, particularly when we're familiar with the Bible, okay, try and engage with the text. Okay, try, try and get swept away with the story. Put ourselves there. Engage our imaginations. Try and think about the details. I think we mustn't allow our familiarity to rob us of the wonder of the biblical storyline. Okay, and the commencements of this second chapter is particularly significant because the central theme of the book is introduced. Okay, as it's done in a clever and subtle way in verse 3, as I've just explained. And the central theme of the book of Ruth is the providence of God. And in our study for tonight, I want us to consider four things the text reveals about the providence of God and how it plays out practically in our lives. But before we get to that, uh, what is providence? Now, the simple definition that I was taught in proteins, which is when I was in high school and it stuck, so I thought I'd share it, is the hand of God. So very simply, when you think of providence, it's the hand of God. Providence is the hand of God at work in this world and in our lives. It speaks of how the Lord accomplishes his plans and purposes, and nothing is outside of God's providential hand. We could say that God's fingerprints are all over this world and all over our lives. And, uh, and this is certainly seen in the story of Ruth. So that's a very simplistic definition. Perhaps I'll get more theological in definition later in the study, but I think that's a good place to start. Providence is the hand of God. So let's see what the text teaches us about God's providential hand at work in our lives. Okay, the first thing we learn is that God's providence includes difficulties and hindrances. You know, often when we think of God's hand on our lives, his providence, uh, we love to identify and we love to discuss when God has done positive things for us, when he has provided in amazing ways, when circumstances are moved in astonishing ways, when seemingly insurmountable barriers are overcome. Okay, we love to talk about those things and we should. Okay, we should rejoice. We should glorify the Lord in these wonderful moments. But here's the thing. God's providence also includes hindrances, providential hindrances, trials, troubles, difficulties. These things that you and I typically regard as negative are also part of the puzzle of God's providence. So it's not only those things that you and I regard as positive that are of the hand of the Lord. And what I'd like to do tonight, I'm actually going to use my son uh, as an example for some of these things, because I think he illustrates it well, and you're pretty familiar with his story. Okay, so when I think about my family, okay, ha with Harry's condition, the Lord has worked in amazing ways. Okay, it blows my mind. Harry received special approval for a medication that was not meant to be given to him at such a young age. 
There were numerous specialists who pushed his case quite hard. They seemed to have a soft spot for him, and his specialists happened to be on the board of Westmead Children. And not only did he receive approval, but the hospital decided to cover the costs. And that was a blessing for us. Each injection is worth over $2,000. And the treatment has worked. Okay? It has helped Harry's condition. Okay? This is all the hand of God. This is all providence. There are many things that I see and I know, and there would be many more things that I can't see and I don't know. And this has been a great source of joy for Emma and I. But here's the thing. And this is the part that we as humans sometimes struggle with. Harry's condition is a part of God's providence. Okay, that, that's like swallowing gravel. It's not sweet honey like the positive providences. It's a lot harder for us to comprehend and accept this. But Harry's condition is just as much a part of God's providence as the miraculous provision for the condition. And we see this point in our text. Okay, in verse 2, we're introduced to a dialogue between Ruth and Naomi. And this is a common poetic device throughout the book. Okay, there's actually a lot of conversation in the book of Ruth. And here in verse 2, Ruth comes to her mother-in-law. And there is some debate amongst the commentators about the tone of her request. Okay, was she seeking submission in sweet Sorry, let me get this right. Was she seeking permission in sweet submission or was she blunt, direct and forceful? Okay, that's what's debated. Either is possible. And I think seeking permission in sweet submission seems to be more consistent with her character. But this sweet submission certainly doesn't diminish the fact that, that here Ruth is taking the initiative. She's not wallowing in her self-pity, thinking, woe is me. But she floats the idea to Naomi that, hey, I should go and glean in the fields. Now, it's important for us to understand this practice of gleaning. Obviously, we don't live in those times, and we don't live in an agricultural society here in Sydney. But if you remember at the conclusion of chapter 1, okay, we're told that it was harvest time. And I presented that as a glimpse or a taste of providence. Now, when it was time for harvest, uh, there was no machinery like today. So the crops, they would be cut and they would be bundled by hand. So there was a knife of some kind. It would cut the stalk close to the ground and then piles would be bundled. So that's the practice of harvesting. But that is not gleaning. Gleaning was a practice of gathering pieces of grain or crops that had been left behind by the harvesters. And this was a lowly task reserved for the poor and homeless. So when we think of like gleaning, they're like the scavengers coming in looking for the scraps that have been left behind. And, and the Lord actually incorporated the practice of gleaning into the law. Okay, so, so this was actually a law that regulated uh, Jewish society. Okay, two, two verses, Leviticus 19 and verse 9. It says, And when ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. Okay, there's two things. Leave the corners and don't gather the gleanings. And then Deuteronomy 24 and verse 19. It says, When thou cuttest down thine harvest in thy field, and hast forgot a sheaf in the field, 
Thou shalt not go again to fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hands. So the Lord ensured that anything that was dropped during the harvesting process, that was to be left in the fields. Okay, the farmer was not to go back through and collect it. And the Lord also required that the corners of the paddock, so just a small section, it should be left. Okay, and this functioned as Israel's social security. Okay, there was no Centrelink in Israel. This was God's way of caring for the poor. And that's very clear in the Deuteronomy text. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. And what this reveals to us is that our God cares for the poor, the lowly, and the destitute. That's the heart of God, so much so that he incorporated protection for them into his law. And understand, that's the heart of true religion, James 1, 27. And what this means is that as the followers of Jesus Christ, you and I, we should care for the poor and lowly. Okay? We ought not to despise, ridicule, and look down on the poor and lowly. We ought not to mistreat the less fortunate. Okay? And all of these negative attitudes toward the poor and lowly, towards the destitute, that, that can be present in our lives, okay? that needs to be eradicated by God's transforming grace because A, that's inconsistent with God's character, and B, it's inconsistent with the gospel. But for the point that I'd like to make in the realm of providence, the fact that Ruth was gleaning means that she was poor and destitute. Okay, they, they had arrived at their rock bottom moment. And this is something that we've already established. The hand of the Lord has brought them low. Providentially, he has hindered them. He's taken things away. And the fact that they are brought low... This is just as much a part of God's providence as the good things that will eventually come to pass in the life of Ruth and Naomi. And my friend, this is the same for you. This is the same for me. God's hand in our lives will sometimes include hindrances. There will be difficulties. There will be trials. There will be troubles. Now, as an aside, it doesn't mean that God is responsible for evil. Nor does it mean that, that he has decreed the wicked things that happen in our world. Okay, God is not the author of evil. Okay, sin, evil, this is a result of living in a sin-cursed world amongst fallen humanity who have a free will. Okay, that's the answer for evil. And the wonderful thing about God is that in his providence, he is so great and so amazing that he can use even these horrible things, these unspeakable things to bring about great goods think about the cross that's the ultimate example the greatest injustice has brought about the greatest good okay what they intended for evil god used for good but it's important for you and i to understand that providence is not just things that we regard as favorable for us it also extends to hindrances to trials to troubles to difficulties God permits these things into our lives too, for varying reasons, and sometimes we may never know that reason. So we don't get the job. The relationship doesn't work out. We have the car crash, we get the illness. Okay, but these things are no less God's hand than these amazing things that we experience. Okay, that's the first thing that we learn about providence. 
The second thing is that God's providence doesn't eliminate human responsibility. You know, I'm not sure if you have come across this, but from time to time, uh, I'll meet people, and, and to be blunt, they're just being very foolish, but they're expecting the Lord to work it all out for them. Okay, so someone refuses to work, expecting God to provide in some kind of miraculous way. Sure, he could, but it's highly unlikely because the Lord commands us to work if we're able. Okay, you want a new car, so you need to go and look for the new car. It's not just going to miraculously drop in your driveway. Okay, or you need to get a job. Okay, well, what do you do? Well, you need to go and apply for jobs, not just sit around hoping it finds you. God's providence doesn't eliminate human responsibility. Okay, and this is seen in the text. Ruth and Naomi, they're, they're poor widows. Okay, they're destitute. And yet the solution is not for them to just wait around until the Lord performs some amazing miracle. He could have, but that was not the solution. Rather, the solution is to go and get work where possible and trust in God's providence to provide. Okay, so, so do you see that? God's providence, human responsibility are in harmony. Okay, they're not incompatible. Okay, let, let's look at Ruth's situation. Okay, Ruth takes great initiative in, in verse 2. She takes it upon herself to provide a way okay, to, to care for both herself and Naomi. Okay, that says much about her character. She doesn't just sit around and do nothing. You know, perhaps her and Naomi think, well, hey, let's just wait for Boaz. He, he's rich. Maybe he'll help us out. But rather, she, she, she goes and does something. And the Lord providentially leads and guides her situation. And what we need to understand is that this solution that Ruth pursues, this was not without possible dangers. Okay, verse 2 makes it clear that she would be dependent on the grace of others. And this could be speaking of the owner of the land or the harvesters. And this phrase, shall find grace, was actually used in the court, where a subject would acknowledge his or her dependence upon and need for mercy at the hands of the king. Okay, so the favor of a superior cannot be taken for granted. That's the sense of this term. So Ruth was completely dependent on others. Okay, and again, this builds the suspense. Will she find someone gracious? Now, continuing to think through the dangers, it's interesting that later in the story, Boaz makes sure that the young men stay away from Ruth that they don't harm her. And the fact that this is recorded necessitates that this was a potential danger. And then in verse 2, the fact that Ruth is identified as the Moabite S is designed to identify another potential hindrance. She may not be welcome in some of the fields. Why? Because she's not a Jew. And those people from Moab... The Jews did not think that highly of them. In fact, it's interesting. One writer makes this observation. Again, this is in your notes. It's a lengthy quote, but it's definitely worthwhile. He says five times in the book, Ruth is called Ruth the Moabitess. Twice by Boaz in chapter 4, verse 5 and 10. And three times by the author, chapter 1, verse 22, chapter 2, verse 2 and verse 21. Elsewhere, the narrator referred to her simply as Ruth okay, in those references, while she identified herself once in the same way, chapter 3, verse 9. 
And the need for legal precision probably accounts for the two occurrences of chapter 4, but what of the others? One is struck by how the narrator deployed the expression. He introduced it unexpectedly just after Ruth's arrival in Bethlehem, chapter 1, verse 22, and then bracketed chapter 2 with it, chapter 2, verse 2, and verse 21. And strikingly, besides chapter 1, verse 4, Moabite women, the only other reference to her race, a Moabite girl, also comes in chapter 2 in the foreman's retrospective comment to Boaz, chapter 2, verse 6. Though subtle, the concentration of racial references shortly after Ruth's arrival in Judah might imply that once in Bethlehem, Ruth's race became a factor in the story. And I think that has some merits. So, so she had all of these challenges. She risks ostracism. She risks physical harm in order to, to provide for Naomi. Okay, but this is because she couldn't just sit back and expect providence to take care of things. Okay, God can work providentially in spite of us. I get that. I'm not limiting God in any way. I merely want to point out that providence doesn't eliminate human responsibility and it doesn't permit or encourage human irresponsibility. Okay, we're not to put God to the foolish test under the banner of providence. The third thing that God's providence is most often accomplished through ordinary means. You know, when we think of God's providential hand, uh, we need to understand that usually he works through people, a human instrumentality, and it's often through ordinary means. Now, this does not exclude the absolutely outrageous. God can do some astonishing things. But often it's brought about through ordinary means. And what I mean by this is perhaps best illustrated by an example. Okay, say you have a pressing financial burden. Okay, an operation is urgently needed. It's going to cost you $20,000 and you don't have the money. The chances of God sending a rain cloud filled with $100 notes over your backyard is very unlikely. I'm not saying he can't, and if he does, please record it and ring me. I really want to see it. Okay, But God doesn't usually work in, in those kind of ways, but rather other miraculous ways. Okay, He will burden someone to give you the money, or there's an unexpected bonus at work. Okay, This is usually how providence works out. And, and this in no way diminishes providence. But we need to understand that God often uses human instrumentality. Why? Well, because then many people are blessed. Okay, it does us much good to not only receive providence, but also be an instrument of providence that God uses. And the Lord often works through ordinary events and moments. Okay, and this is seen uh, in the text. And uh, we will see this frequently throughout the unfolding narrative. Uh, the Lord didn't rain down food. He didn't turn one piece of bread into an endless supply. He could have done that. But rather, let's consider how he worked. Okay, in verse 2, when Ruth says, I shall find grace. Okay, this seems to imply seeking permission. Okay, she's going to, to go and seek permission to work in someone's field. Okay, she wouldn't just arrive and say, well, hey, God's law says you have to let me do it. But rather she seeks permission. And we don't know if she was denied by some 
or if the field that she ended up in was the first field. But either way, there were lots of fields. Okay, there wasn't just one or two in Bethlehem. She could have ended up in a hundred different paddocks with many different owners, but she ended up in the field of Boaz. Okay, this is providence. This is the Lord directing the everyday moments, the mundane events. And we aren't told how the Lord did it. Okay, we aren't told how Ruth ends up in the field of Boaz. And, and I actually think that's instructive because the Lord is not limited in how he brings these things about. Okay? The Lord has an infinite playbook. And however he did it, he worked in a way that Ruth ended up in the field of Boaz. Evidently there she found grace. And the Lord enabled her to, to be able to glean here. Okay, That's how the food was provided for, by gleaning in the fields of Boaz. It was through Ruth working. And it came about because an owner like Boaz allowed people like Ruth to be in his fields. So Ruth is the beneficiary of the providence and Boaz is the Lord's providential instrument. Yeah, and here's the thing, since providence is often in the mundane events of life and is often executed through normal means, it's very easy for us to miss. And uh, this is a reminder for us. Okay, we, we need to understand that, that God's providence is not just evident in the life-defining moments or at those crucial crossroads or at the massive decision times. You know, I'm sure we've all got stories where the Lord's okay, worked in some amazing way and, and we will never forget it. Uh, I know I've probably got about 10 of those that I, that I could share. Okay, but, but it's not just those times but rather his hand is upon our lives in a thousand smaller ways each and every day and more often than not it's it's not some astonishing miracle although god is very capable but often he works through the mundane events of life and uses other people to work in our lives okay this is often how god's providence plays out practically so don't think that God's hand is not on your life just because you haven't seen something absolutely astonishing. Okay, so something that you know, had to be seen in order to be believed. Okay, yes, God does that, but providence is not limited to such things. And more often than not, God's providence is accomplished through normal means, often through human instrumentality and often in smaller ways. So much so that it can be very easy for us to miss. And so with that in mind, may the Lord help us to be more in tune with what he's doing in our lives. And may we be more diligent to, to search for it and to acknowledge the providential hand of God at work in our lives. Okay, we look for it. We will definitely find it. I can guarantee that. So that's the third thing. And the fourth and final thing is that God often implements smaller providences to accomplish bigger plans. Uh, I'm not sure if you like puzzles or not. Um, it's not really my thing. The only puzzles I like are Harry's puzzles because they're about 20 pieces. Uh, but Emma, she loves big puzzles. And obviously a puzzle requires lots of smaller pieces to come together to make the big picture. And often that's how God's providence works. Okay, there are lots of smaller pieces of providence both what we would regard as positive and negative, that contribute to a bigger 
providential plan. Okay, so there's lots of small providences that's contributing to something bigger. Again, here's a personal illustration. Okay, Harry uh, was seeing one specialist and uh, she was really good. She was very helpful. We liked her. She was better than the previous specialist we were seeing. And we thought she could see Harry. And there were varying providences at work that brought us to her. Okay, we saw her only a couple of times and she was off on maternity leave. So that meant we could no longer see her. And selfishly for us, that was disappointing. But what ended up happening is that we got sent to another specialist. And that specialist happened to be on the board of Westmead Children's Hospital. And she was the one who pushed Harry's case to get the approval for the medication that he's on. And without that particular doctor going on maternity leave, that may well have never happened. So, so God's working things together to accomplish one of the bigger plans in Harry's life. And I look forward to see what other big plans the Lord has in store for my son. But in the text here, this is how the Lord worked. Okay, think about all of the providences that had unfolded up until this point. Okay, right back at the start, the family left Bethlehem. Okay, that, that was sin. And God, in his infinite goodness, has providentially taken this and he's used it. Ruth happens to marry into this family. Why didn't she marry a Moabite? And then things fall apart. There are three funerals. And then news okay, providentially comes through that the famine is over in Bethlehem. Naomi happens to hear this news. She decides to return. Ruth too returns. And they just happen to return in harvest time. Okay, can you see that the providential puzzle is coming together piece by piece? And now after returning, Ruth just happens to end up in the field of Boaz. More pieces added to the providential puzzle. But this is what I want you to see. Okay, God wasn't doing this just for the sake of it. He had a bigger picture in mind. And all of these amazing providences so far that they're leading to one even greater. Because we're told in verse 1 that Boaz was of the family of Elimelech and he was a kinsman. Okay, he was a kinsman. That qualified him according to the law of God to redeem. Okay, to buy back the land of Elimelech and most importantly to continue the family line of Elimelech through Ruth. Okay, and I'm going to flesh out this concept in, in another study. Okay, but, but can you see the bigger picture? God brings her, brings Ruth here... Because Boaz is the one who could be the Redeemer. Okay, she's not just brought here randomly. But the Lord has bigger plans. He has bigger purposes to come. And ultimately, so big was the plan that it involved the coming of Jesus Christ. Okay, all of these little providences here okay, play a role in the coming of Christ. Because Ruth is in the genealogy of Jesus. And this, too, is how God often works in our lives. Often he's putting together the providential puzzle. And they are often so many smaller pieces, but he has bigger plans. He has bigger purposes in mind. So, so these small providences are never just for the sake of it. There are some bigger pictures. Okay, now God has some bigger plans and purposes that are true for every single one of us in this room. God wants to make us more like Christ. That's what he's striving to do in each of our lives. God wants us to serve him. God wants us to share the gospel. 
Okay, that these are some of the bigger pictures that are true for all of us. And often the smaller providences in life are contributing to those bigger pictures. And then for each of us, there will be individualized bigger pictures that God has for you. Okay, God has unique plans for you and for me. And his smaller providences will contribute to the development and the implementation of these bigger plans. But understand, nothing is ever wasted with God. And nothing happens for no reason when it comes to the Lord. Okay, so there are four lessons from the text that we learn about God's providence at work in our lives. And I trust this helps us to understand clearer okay, the, the work of God's providence. Uh, but more importantly, this is what I desire even more, is that may this increase our love for our God. May, may this increase our delight in him. May we be awestruck by him because this is truly amazing. God's hand is on our lives. God cares enough. Please let this hit in. God cares enough to be involved in your life. God cares enough to be involved in my life. And he has plans and he has purposes that he's seeking to bring about in our lives. That's incredible. And understand that with God, there's, there's no chance or, or there's no fate with the Lord. Just his providential hand. And it's working. It's guiding. It's shaping it's molding and nothing is outside of god's providence and he will use everything to bring his plans and purposes to pass okay and ultimately okay, he's going to bring his ultimate plan and purpose to pass and that is the culmination of redemption okay everything is working toward that end Okay, we could refer to that as God's providential endgame, and we long for that. Okay, everything is moving toward that, and that's our great hope. That's our great expectation. That's what our God is going to do. My friend, we serve a great God, and I trust that you are struck by the wonder of his providential hand. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for who you are. Uh, you, you are indeed uh, a great God. As the hymn writer says, you know, how, how great thou art. I, I trust that is the song uh, in our hearts. Um, Lord, yes, that the doctrine of providence does uh, pose us with some, with some difficulties, particularly uh, in the face of trials and, and troubles and, and so forth. Um, and, and yet it's a wonderful comfort that, that you are uh, in control, that your hand is on our lives because the alternative is a terrifying reality. And uh, I do pray that, um, that you know, the, the doctrine of, of providence uh, would grow uh, our love for you and our delight in you. Please keep us safe as we travel home until we meet again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.